This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good morning. I want to thank Brett Blumenauer and Representative Cohen for being here, and for all of you as well. Uh, in May of 2014, uh, Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin sent a bill into law which required his Secretary of Administration to produce a report about the issues and the options surrounding marijuana legalization. In collaboration with seven of my colleagues, two of them are here today, uh, we've spent a good chunk of the last five months working on that report. Uh, the work was uh, supported by the state of Vermont as well as by the Good Ventures Foundation, which is based out in California. About, I want to make it very clear that the report only reflects the views of the authors, and I also want to make it very clear that RAND does not have an official policy, or official, you know, policy uh, with respect to uh, marijuana. We produced a thick document, and there are eight chapters, it's over 80,000 words, and for those of you who don't want to read the whole thing, we've got nice summaries out front. If you haven't grabbed one already, please grab one on your way out. Um, while there's a lot in the report about marijuana and marijuana policies and what's happening in other places, I want to be very clear about what's not in the report. You're not going to find specific recommendations about what Vermont should do. Our goal wasn't to say Vermont should do X or Vermont should do Y. What we're really trying to do is provide insights for, the, for discussions that we expect to see in Vermont and also highlight a lot of the uncertainty that not only surrounds what would happen with respect to tax revenues, but also the uncertainty that surrounds what could potentially happen to public health. I uh, want to make it very clear, while this report, uh, while parts of it were written for Vermont, we also were writing it with other states and other countries in mind, you know, because we expect that a lot of other jurisdictions are considering these, uh, uh, are, are considering uh, alternatives to marijuana prohibition. So we really wrote this in a way that could be useful in kind of walking through the different consequences associated with different policy options. So our plan for today is I want to provide a little bit of context for kind of why we're having these discussions. And then I want to spend some time talking about the different options that states and jurisdictions have uh, with respect to who could supply marijuana and also what the taxes could be. Um, I'm then going to hand it over to my colleague John Calkins, and he's going to spend time really looking at, or he's going to explain to you how legalization could influence public budgets, and it's not just through tax revenues. And he's also going to spend some time talking about legalization and public health. And at that point, then we'll open it up uh, for Q&A. But just to provide some perspective, uh, this chart uh, looks at the number of past month marijuana users over time as a function of the number of days they use in the past month. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that the total number of past month users inc has increased over time. And there really has been this sharp increase since 2009. Now, I wouldn't make too much of the, uh, the uh, change between 2001 and 2002 because there was a change in the methodology. But I also want you to pay attention to those red bars at the very bottom, which represent those individuals who reported using marijuana on 21 or more days in the past month. These are the people we refer to as daily or near daily users. In the 1990s, this population was on the order of about 1 million. But by 2013, we now have 7 million self-reported daily and near daily users. And this is important because this is the population, these, these folks that use 21 or more days, they account for 80% of all of the consumption and 80% of all the expenditures. So when you begin thinking about the consequences of changing marijuana policies, this is a group you're really going to want to pay attention to. Now over time, kind of through, um, kind of over the 90s and through the 2000s, we also saw an increase in support for legalizing marijuana use, uh, with most of the polls now putting it somewhere right around 50%. Some are higher, some are lower. 
This next slide looks at the number of arrests for marijuana possession over time. You know, while there has been a significant decline since about 2007, 2008, it's important to remember that we, there still were 600,000 arrests in 2013. Reducing these arrests and the costs that they impose on taxpayers, uh, arrestees, and their families is one of the motivating factors for this uh, legalization discussion. So I just want to provide a little bit of context here. And as many of you know, in 2012, uh, the changes that happened in Colorado and Washington were unprecedented. The voters there not only voted to remove marijuana prohibition, they also voted to allow for-profit companies to come in and begin producing and distributing marijuana. That doesn't even happen in the Netherlands. And then in uh, November of 2014, voters in Alaska and Oregon also passed initiatives to allow for-profit companies to come in, and they're now in the process of uh, kind of developing those regulations and making decisions about how they want their, what they want their industries to look like. And as many of you know, also in November of 2014, uh, the voters of, Washington, uh, voters of Washington, D.C. passed an initiative to allow home production as well as uh, possession of small amounts, kind of a grow and give model. And earlier this week, uh, the D.C. City Council uh, transmitted that to Congress. It'll be very interesting to kind of see how this all plays out. I'm sure a lot of you have opinions about that. Uh, but for us, it kind of highlights what we think is one of the main points of the report. And that is, if you're a jurisdiction and you're thinking about doing something other than prohibiting marijuana, you have a lot of options out there. Right now, most of the discussion has either been prohibition or the for-profit model. And we want people to understand that, first of all, we don't, no one knows what the best model is, but there are other options. And that if you're thinking seriously about this, you may want to consider you know, some of these uh, kind of uh, middle options that I'll get to in a moment. But of course, it's also important to remember that this is still all illegal under federal law. And it wasn't until August of 2013 that we finally heard from the Department of Justice when they, they released the Cole memo, indicating that for the time being, they weren't going to block implementation efforts in Colorado and Washington as long as, they, as long as those states and other states had strong regulatory enforcement systems in place. <clears throat> that said, they made it very clear that the federal government wasn't legalizing marijuana. And in fact, the memo lays out uh, you know, kind of a list of gui uh, guidelines for federal prosecutors suggesting that if you're going to go for a marijuana case, here, these should be your priorities. Go after those organizations that are distributing to minors, those that are serving as a front for organized crime, uh, those that are uh, kind of contributing to diversion to other states. I mean, there are a number of kind of different, uh, uh, different guidelines in the memo, and there have been subsequent memos um, with respect to banking and also uh, uh, with respect to uh, what federal prosecutors should do about marijuana on, um, on Indian reservations or on uh, native lands. Um, but realize what this did. This memo not only sent a signal to those states, it also sent a signal to other states and to other jurisdictions that for the time being, the Obama administration was willing to tolerate for-profit companies to come in and produce a federally prohibited drug as long as they play by their rules. This really has sent signals to other places, and I think you're seeing discussions uh, in a lot of different countries where you probably, if, the, if that memo had not have come out, you probably wouldn't necessarily see as many of those conversations. But remember, these are just federal these are just kind of federal guidelines. While we've seen nothing to indicate that the Obama administration would change these over the next couple of years, realize that in, no in January of 2017, there's going to be a new president. And we have no idea whether or not that individual is going to kind of continue with the current marijuana policy or, or the federal kind of approach to marijuana or whether or not they're going to do something else. So this is important when you're thinking about trying to make projections about what's going to happen. A lot's going to depend on kind of what happens in 2016. 
Now, as I said, uh, uh, one of the big takeaways from the report is that there are a lot of options that uh, jurisdictions have uh, if they're considering uh, doing something besides kind of status quo prohibition. In the, we, in the report, we go through 12 of these different options, and I just want to highlight a few uh, for you uh, this morning. Uh, the most commonly discussed options, you know, on the left you have the, let's prohibit marijuana, but let's decrease the sanctions. You know, one could think about this as the uh, mend it, uh, but don't end it approach. Uh, even the anti-legalization group Project SAM, I mean, if you go to their webpage, even they support eliminating mandatory minimum sentences for those individuals that are convicted of selling or distributing marijuana, and they want to make sure that the penalties are fair and proportionate. Now, on the right, we have the for-profit model adopted in Colorado and Washington. You know, it's often referred to as the uh, regulate marijuana-like alcohol approach. You know, the idea here is that a regulated market will make products safer, make them more consistent, uh, you would um, reduce the black market, and that it also could generate uh, significant revenues. Um, it's also an option that's just easy to explain to voters. People understand, people kind of, they see beer, they see liquor in the stores. And so I think that's one of the reasons why you see it on so many ballot initiatives. It's just, it, I think it pulls well and people understand it. Um, but another feature of the for-profit model is that, is, is, is that it, lets, it really does allow the market to evolve to maximize the efficiency of production. Now, while some people are excited about that, they want to see this efficiency, for others, that efficiency really is a drawback. Because as you make production and distribution more efficient, you then could end up suppressing the retail price. And what that means is that could have not only have implications for tax revenues, but it also could have implications for consumption. Because you know that users and, and, and young users, are, especially young users, are sensitive to the price of marijuana. So these are things you want to begin thinking about here. The price really does matter. There are also concerns that when you kind of allow for-profit companies to get involved, that you're going to create this industry that may end up fighting against regulations or fighting against taxation, uh, or in the end, end up kind of really heavily advertising uh, to certain groups. Remember what I said about that one, that one, you know, those heavy users, that they account for 80% of the market. So if you're a for-profit company and you want to make serious money in this industry, that's the group you're largely going to target. So these are things you need to keep in mind if you're going to be designing one of these industries. Now, of course, there are intermediate options, you know, short of allowing large-scale commercial efforts. You know, jurisdictions could allow home production, as was passed here in Washington, D.C., or you could allow Spanish-style uh, marijuana cooperatives, uh, which create an option for legal supply with minimal risk. You know, they can reduce the cost of prohibition without requiring many regulatory costs. But, however, these options won't necessarily bring in a lot of money, and they won't necessarily eliminate the black market. But the point here is that there are other options uh, that jurisdictions could uh, consider. Now, but if you are a jurisdiction and you're thinking about doing something other than prohibiting marijuana, and you do want to allow, allow large-scale production in hopes of kind of generating significant tax revenues, you know, there are options besides the for-profit commercial model. Now, you could have, potentially you could have a state monopoly that would, uh, where the state would do the production, the state would do the distribution, that would prevent diversion to a black market, it would set the price that it thinks best serves the public interest, and it also can ensure that there would be no promotion. However, this approach doesn't necessarily get a lot of attention in the United States because of the federal prohibition. And if a state were to go down this path, they would essentially be ordering their employees to violate federal law. So in the report, we spend a lot of time talking about this monopoly model, because there is a fair amount of research that we have on this with respect to kind of what happened with alcohol. Um, but in the report, we also spend time talking about some of these other options. Um, we, uh, we also re we refer to a model which we um, call the near monopoly model. 
and that is where a state could potentially set up a public authority, think a housing authority or a transport authority, where, where the state could appoint the members, help set policy, but the state wouldn't necessarily be actually possessing or distributing the drug. States could also limit uh, participation in the market to nonprofit organizations. And here it's important to remember that nonprofit isn't the same as non-revenue. You can still get money that way. You know, for example, maybe you could uh, you know, limit the market to those nonprofits that are, are focused on public health issues or maybe you know, are focused on child health. I mean, there are a lot of different options here. But if, even if you are going to kind of go down the path of creating an industry that is a, you know, that, you know, a for-profit industry, you could also, one op, another option there is you could consider limiting the market to socially responsible businesses, you know, such as for-benefit corporations or B Corps, you know, that really try to focus on the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profits. I mean, indeed, if you are going to create a new industry, you may not necessarily want to create one that's exclusively focused on profit. So these are, these are some of the decisions uh, that are going to be confronting those jurisdictions that are thinking about doing something other than prohibiting marijuana. But I also want to make it clear that the for-profit model I've been talking about isn't the most extreme example. Indeed, uh, there's nothing stopping the state from essentially just wiping, deciding to just wipe marijuana off its law books and say, we're just not going to regulate and we're not going to enforce anything with marijuana, essentially leaving it up to the federal government. And indeed, this is what the state of New York did during alcohol prohibition in 1920. So and one, could, one may be concerned about that particular model, because if you didn't necessarily have the regulations, uh, you may be worried, you know, especially with respect to public, uh, you know, kind of the public health consequences of not having, uh, not having the testing and, uh, and, just, and, and just kind of letting the industry do what it wants. So there are a lot of these options here. And also, so we have a whole chapter in the report that kind of focuses on what we call the supply architecture. Uh, we also have another chapter that goes through uh, all the different regulations you'd want to consider, and we can spend some time talking about that during the Q&A. But then we also have another chapter focused all on taxation, and it's probably the most thorough assessment of, uh, of marijuana taxes I think that's ever been done, and I, I attribute a lot of that uh, to my uh, co-author, Pat Oglesby. And, uh, but to give you a, it, 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 it's a very uh, dense chapter. Um, but the thing you have to think about is that if you are going to create this retail market and you are going to, you know, and you do want to create taxes, you know, some people, you know, you're worried that, you know, if you have a lot of competition and it reduces those production and distribution costs, people think, oh, well, we'll just slap a big tax on it and we'll be able to keep it at its black market rate. But the thing you have to keep in mind with all of this, if the tax is set too high, then you still could have the black market. So, you know, let's be honest here. Nobody knows the best way to tax marijuana. Um, you know, what we're seeing in Colorado and Washington, they're using ad valorem taxes, which tax it as a function of the price. Um, but the thing to keep, while those are very easy to apply, it's also important to note that kind of as prices go down, so we are tax revenue. In Oregon and Alaska, they passed, a, a, um, in their initiatives, they're taxing as a function of weight. You know, so for example, in, or in Alaska, I think it's going to be $50 an ounce. Um, once again, that's fairly easy to apply. But on the other hand, there are concerns that if you tax as a function of weight, that it's not only going to make, uh, it's going to create incentives for the producers to produce more potent pot and for individuals to purchase more potent pot. And so that's kind of what economic theory tells us. And so actually, it'll be very interesting to kind of see how this plays out. Uh, there's also the possibility that you could tax it as a function of its THC. Um, the THC levels, you know, really try to tax as a function of intoxication. And in fact, we kind of see that with alcohol in a number of states. We have different taxes for beer, different taxes for uh, wine, different taxes for spirits. Um, while we think that, uh, that, that, that while that does seem like a good idea, it really does depend, though, 
on the, on the technology and kind of the infrastructure you have for doing the testing. So um, as I said, right now, nobody knows the best way to do this. And I think jurisdictions that are kind of, uh, kind of experiencing these growing pains, you're gonna learn over time. And so if you're designing one of these regimes, one thing you need to keep in mind is how flexible is it going to be? Are you gonna set the tax to be, you know, you know with one base and one rate and kind of stick with that? Or, you know, if you want changes, is it going to require new legislative action? Is it going to require another initiative? Um, there are options. You may want to even think about, you know, maybe having separate tax commissions because, it, you know, the optimal tax in the first couple of years could be very different from what the tax should be in years three, four, and five. And as I said, jurisdictions are still getting to know, I mean, they're going to be learning from one another. So, so, this is, so this idea of kind of building this flexibility in, I think it's pretty smart if you're going to be going down this path. Uh, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, John Calkins to tell you a little bit more about uh, the work that we did looking at how legalization can influence public budgets and also public health. Thanks, Bill. So a very common argument for legalizing marijuana is the desire to reduce criminal justice costs. One of our key findings is that a state does not need to legalize marijuana in order to shrink those costs down to very low levels. A thorough decriminalization will do. Vermont now spends only about $1 million a year enforcing its marijuana prohibition because it decriminalized, effective July 1st, 2013, in a way that cut arrests by over 80%, even more for simple possession arrests. On the day that we asked, there were a grand total of just three people in the entire state incarcerated for marijuana offenses only. Now, Vermont is a small state, but even if I scale those numbers to national levels, it would be only about a half a billion dollars a year spent on enforcing prohibition. So decriminalization can get you a lot of the cost savings. Furthermore, legalization does not make enforcement costs drop to zero. There could still be enforcement against underage use, impaired driving, use in public, sale after hours. If a state legalized and its neighbors did not, there could be straight up black market production in the state that legalized to serve the out-of-state market, as happens in Washington state. Even when the neighbors have legalized, there could still be illegal cross-border movement of the marijuana to evade taxes, as we see now with tobacco and alcohol, but might occur to a much greater extent for marijuana because it is so much more compact. A year's supply of marijuana for a heavy user weighs about as much as one can of beer, which makes it very portable. And, and there would be regulatory costs. The, the scale depends on which architecture one chooses. Bo describes some, like own, grow, and give, or this Spanish co-op model, for which the regulatory costs would be very small. But to legalize and regulate like alcohol or any of those other large-scale options, even in a state the size of Vermont, would have regulatory costs in the low to mid single digit millions of dollars. And there are other cost implications. One that gets a lot of attention is the impact on marijuana treatment. Vermont, for example, had been spending about $2 million a year treating people whose primary substance of abuse was marijuana. If that increased in proportion to expected increases in use, that extra cost could be comparable to current spending on enforcement, although there are reasons to be more optimistic that it may not grow as much. Another example of a cost, one that perhaps deserves more attention than it's received, is the cost to employers of revamping their workplace drug use policies, particularly for that time period when the state and federal laws conflict. The report goes through 
many of those examples. I mentioned just those two. I do want to turn to the positive side, though, the potential for gaining revenue. There are many complexities and uncertainties, starting, of course, with just the size of the taxes, as well as, as Bo points out, the base tax by weight, by amount of THC as a percentage of value. And there are a slew of regulatory options that the report goes through in great detail. But for right now, I just want to stress the revenues derived by a state that legalizes will depend substantially on the actions of other jurisdictions. Most obviously, the federal government. If the federal government were to quash the market, that would eliminate the revenues. But more subtly, the actions of its neighbors. If a neighboring state legalized with lower taxes, that could interfere with the other state's ability to generate revenue. By contrast, we did this report for Vermont, and for as long as Vermont were the only state east of the Mississippi that had legalized, it could enjoy a real boom in taxes by taxing exports to the other state. They're not literally exports, because as Bo points out, that violates the memo, but there would be drug tourism and de facto taxation of the purchases by the people who come to the state to buy. That's only a medium-term phenomenon, though, because in the long run, the industry would be highly footloose. The plant's spectacularly productive. The amount of acreage needed to supply the entire country is very small. So any jurisdiction could serve the entire national market after national legalization, and you would expect it to gravitate towards whatever state gave the lowest regulatory burden in taxes. Um, in a minute, I'm going to talk about some specific numbers for taxes on the marijuana sales itself, but legalization could affect other kinds of taxes, and I just want to note that fact. For instance, legalizing marijuana might affect excise taxes collected on tobacco and alcohol. These tourists could be renting hotel rooms or rental cars that are taxed. There could be impacts on income taxes in a beneficial direction because an industry that had been under the table becomes above board and starts to pay income tax on FICA or in an adverse effect from productivity tax. So, so lots of impacts on taxes, but what I'm going to talk about now is the effect of taxes on the sales themselves. Um, this slide is a brief sketch of the recipe for trying to estimate that. You start with the current level of spending. You anticipate what the price will be with taxes down the road and compare it to the black market price both today and in the future because the prices are trending down anyhow. And you think about how responsive users are to changes in price. Price goes down, use goes up. How much they respond to non-price effects. You have to think about what proportion of the consumption would be not taxed, either because it's medical or it's in a residual black market. If you put those kinds of considerations into a revenue model, for a state the size of Vermont, it might hope to get something on the order of 20 to $75 million a year from taxes on its own residents' consumption if the tax rate is fairly aggressive. And what I mean by aggressive is our point estimate was 50% tax rate, but we allowed for anywhere between 20% and 100%. Now, I do want to stress that's not a range, not a bound, definitely not a promise. This is just an illustration of the amount of uncertainty that stems just from the factors that I mentioned in the previous slide. It doesn't factor in uncertainty generated by the actions of other states. 
Um, oh, the last bullet on the slide, important, is the corresponding projection of the impact on consumption, and that could be an increase of something on the order of 25 to 100 percent, in part from the legalization, in part because of the anticipation that the black market prices would decline anyhow. Now, one of the other key conclusions of the report is that no state is an island because the product is so compact and can flow across borders. If one state had lower taxes than another, or put it a different way, if one state banned certain products like candy bars or vaping pens, but another state allowed them, you'd expect the product to move across border sort of the way that fireworks can today. Now, for a small state in the Northeast, like Vermont, this applies in spades, and I'll talk that through with this graph. Um, there are about five times as many marijuana users in the United States who live within 50 miles of Vermont's borders as there are users inside Vermont itself. Seven times as many if you include Canadians, and that's an easy drive. If we take that range out to a couple hundred miles, too far perhaps for a day trip, but plausible for a weekend trip, particularly if the driver were buying for four or five friends, the number of users outside Vermont's borders but nearby is 40 times as large as the number of users inside Vermont. So this potential for drug tourism is really the elephant in the room for a state like Vermont. And ironically, it turns out the numbers are almost identical for Washington, D.C., by coincidence. And I want to note that it would actually be hard for a state not to serve some of this drug tourism. For instance, if the state said only residents can buy at the stores, that doesn't prevent residents from buying and reselling to people from other states in the same way that it's hard to prevent a 21-year-old from buying alcohol and reselling to a 20-year-old. So far, I've been stressing uncertainty. That's intentional. There is a lot of uncertainty, but I want to note the uncertainty is mostly about the first digit in all these numbers. We've got a better sense of the number of zeros that comes after the first digit, and those differences in order of magnitude matter. So this is numbers for Vermont, but the story could be similar for a number of other states. After decriminalization, spending on marijuana prohibition is about a million dollars a year. The cost of regulation, bigger than that, single-digit millions. The potential tax revenues from the state's own residents, bigger yet again, somewhere in the tens of millions of dollars. And in these scenarios where one state moves first, especially if it's a smaller jurisdiction in the east, the potential revenues from the drug tourist tax could be into the hundreds of millions of dollars unless and until other jurisdictions were to follow suit. All right, it's enough about dollars. Let me switch over to talking a little bit about health effects. The key point here is that heavy marijuana use is very strongly correlated with a very wide range of bad outcomes. Adverse physical, behavioral, mental health outcomes, poor performance in school, work, interpersonal relationships. It is associated with a lot of bad outcomes. However, it's very hard to establish in a definitive scientific way when there is a causal relationship. Marijuana is a down-market drug. Like tobacco, about 60% of the use is by people with a high school education or less. That demographic faces all kinds of challenges and has 
poor outcomes in health and in the labor market, even without the marijuana use. So you don't know how much is caused by marijuana use as opposed to being simply correlated. And a concrete example of this is the well-known study that finds that kids who use marijuana early, heavy, and long have lower IQ and that IQ is reassessed as adults and in a dose-dependent fashion. More marijuana use, bigger decline. But in our judgment, the nature of that study does not allow a definitive conclusion of causality. So this slide has some acute health consequences for which the scientific literature does support a conclusion that there is a causal effect. Accidents, impairment during intoxication, for instance, of memory, and also what you could think about as the marijuana equivalent of an overdose. So anxiety, dysphoria, um, panic even, potentially serious enough to make someone want to go to the emergency room, but essentially no risk of death as you would have with alcohol or heroin. And this is the corresponding slide for chronic consequences of heavy use. So not great for the lungs and there's dependence. I note that a few weeks ago, the Los Angeles Times had this personal story by a woman who said, uh, let me tell you about my odyssey with suffering marijuana dependence. It's a little jarring that that is news. There are more than 4 million Americans who meet the criteria for substance abuse or dependence on marijuana. That is, that is a consequence. But no matter what the particulars about all these individual effects, one thing that is very clear is that in aggregate, the social costs of marijuana use are quite small compared to the corresponding costs for alcohol, tobacco, and even things like diverted pharmaceuticals. So it's entirely possible that legalization's main impacts on public health will come indirectly through impacts on these other substances. So a, an enthusiast about legalization might say, yeah, there might be more marijuana use, but if that's people switching over from alcohol, that may not be bad. And indeed, even if marijuana abuse doubled, if alcohol abuse dropped even by 10%, that would be a net win. But of course, people can worry that the greater marijuana use could go hand in hand with even greater alcohol use. So we looked at this in detail. The scientific literature on this point is split 50-50 right down the middle. The only scientifically defensible position on this point is pure agnosticism. We can only just wait and find out whether marijuana legalization would increase or reduce alcohol use. For prescription opiates, there's a clearer signal. It's a small literature, not very many studies, but it does suggest what economists call substitution. So you could hope that greater marijuana use might go along with reduced use of prescription opioids and reduced deaths. The one substance for which there are both a lot of studies and they agree is tobacco, and in that case it's complementary. More marijuana use would tend to go with more tobacco use. Now those are interactions on the demand side. There can also be interactions on the supply side. In North America, marijuana joints typically just had marijuana. That's not always the norm around the world. It's common in Europe, for example, for the cigarette to have both marijuana and tobacco. And so you don't know how after legalization the companies may or may not exploit that by adding marijuana to a tobacco cigarette to goose up profits 
or adding tobacco to a marijuana cigarette to make it more addictive. And you can have that interplay also with vaping. Uh, think like e-cigarettes where you can mix a little THC with a little nicotine with some fruit flavoring. Either the company or the individual can do that. So the bottom line point on this slide is that it is entirely possible that the most important public health consequences of legalization will be indirect and mediated through impacts on other use. And so overall, the public health story is well, use and abuse of marijuana will go up. But we don't know how much. We don't know how concerning that is because it's not clear how much of the association with adverse effects is causal. And we don't know how much there will be offsetting or accentuating impacts through other substances. All right, in closing, I just want to recap that as Bo described, there are very many options for legalization, and they differ in fundamental ways. Things like legalizing home growing or these Spanish-style co-ops are much smaller scale, lower risk endeavors than allowing a large-scale market. And even the large-scale options, there's a very big difference whether you entrust that market to for-profit companies, nonprofits, the governments, public authorities, and so on. And it's not that any one of these methods is best. Which one is best for an individual observer depends on that observer's values and perspectives. And the goal of our report was to provide information and frameworks that would help the public generally and policymakers to think through these many different options and which one would serve their interests the best. Now, a second point we found out, not surprisingly, especially with a small state in the Northeast, no state is an island. The actions of other states will affect them. But that is really true generally, not just for Vermont or Washington, D.C. So from the perspective of individual states, this means that marijuana legalization will likely become an issue for you, even if your own state does not legalize, because there is a fairly high chance that one of your neighbors will. And there is this hope that we can have a laboratory of the states innovating and discovering what's the best approach, but it's at least as plausible that there can be a race to the bottom in terms of tax rates or regulatory structures because the industry will be so footloose. So even if the nation did move towards legalization, there may still be an important role for the federal government in setting some sort of floor on the behaviors that are allowed or the tax rates if it's difficult for one state to impose a high tax. Finally, I want to stress that you should not think of the status quo as stable. Four states having legalized a for-profit industry and 46 states remaining dry is not stable. We're in a transition time, and the only question is what we are moving to, not whether or not this will be a policy issue with movement in the future. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.